Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 92 of Storyteller Conclave. This is a show all about helping you run the best tabletop role-playing game that you can. Whether you're a new storyteller or dungeon master learning the craft or an experienced storyteller looking to take your game to the next level, I'm Sarah. I'm Rob. How are we doing, Rob? You know, uh, beyond the uh, random situation that just occurred at the beginning of the show here, uh, I thought I was off to a really good start. Yeah, so. just a little little technical difficulty little that had, te- us, had us peeing a little uh, yeah. before. <laughs> but, I mean, come on, I called it. Like, yeah. It, it was the USB that threw us all down. Rob so. uh, Rob connected two USB cables on the first try. And, and they so weren't we, USB-C. And we, a... we thought they were, this was either going to signal phenomenal luck or the end of our luck. Exactly. So, uh, you know, but we're here. We're up. We're live. And, and things happen. Yeah. So we survived. So um, I, I, you have uh, been playing video games from the very, very beginning. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I like... mean, like I had Pong. Yeah, we're, we're old. We're old, old. <laughs> like, we're old. So many, so many kids nowadays, and they're like, oh, yeah, video gaming started with the Xbox. And you're like, no. No, no. That's, that's adorable. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that is adorable. That's so Let's see, I had, I had Pong. Uh-huh. Actually, uh, I played Adventure on a uh, orange and black screen, two, dual floppy oh, di- wow. drive with less than, uh, it, had, it had less than a meg of memory, this oh, whole system. Oh, wow, 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 wow. And uh, I remember ha- having, and finding, like, the secrets and doing all the, mm-hmm. the crazy stuff with that. So, like, I, I remember... Uh, loading games that you had to type into your computer. Yep. Not and and put on a cassette. Yep. And replay the cassette to be able to play the game. Yes. Yes, I yes. remember that. I remember so that. we we are both that old. Uh, so we we saw the emergence of uh like the video game RPG. Yes. Can you remember the first one you ever played? Um, let's see. Like the first one, first one that was like a real RPG. Graphical. Because yeah. the first ones that I played were all text. Okay. Um, I okay. remember. I remember. I would go to. Um, I would go and get games from when, when we would go to all these uh, hardware swap meets, these computer shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad and I, and uh, I remember I would go to the shareware swap meets. Yeah, I would go to I the shareware stations. Just hearing that, sentence. you know, where these guys would have floppies just layered through their stuff and um that's where i got most of my first games mm-hmm. um was these shareware swap meets and um that's where i got my first copy of doom um was at one of those yeah um and commander keen and all those games yeah um but i want to say my first graphical game and i'm i'm honestly trying to remember the name of it because um it involved uh time travel um and uh but it was an rpg it was clearly an rpg um and it was neat Mm -hmm. um the graphics were exceptionally simple um looking back on it mentally um it had certain mist elements to it if you're you know i know you're familiar with mist where there were some puzzles and something like that Uh but for the most part it was dungeon crawly like go you you know you enter an area you're exploring the area you have certain commands that you can do but it was all text-based you had to type everything you got a little bit of graphics but it was all text otherwise Mm -hmm. um but uh i think i think my first um that that really like struck home with me um I may be a little bit off on the uh, on the, the, the the chronology of it here, but I think fi- the first Final Fantasy game, the first, the NES, yes, was probably my first like real RPG. I never got to play fully the first Final Fantasy game. I got to watch a lot of people play uh-huh. it, but I I never had it, so oh, I never got great. to play it. Yeah, uh, it was it was great, and uh, I I think it really like it impacted a lot of I think my formative years um, of uh, you know when I started getting into tabletop role playing games and stuff like that. Um, uh, I started seeing that you know it, it heavily influenced the stories that I would tell, the mm-hmm. stories that I oh, that yeah. I liked to consume and stuff like that. Um, and I became a big fan of the Final Fantasy series uh, oh, yeah. to to begin with. Like, uh, and I, I saw like a post on Tumblr the other day, and it was like, name the the five most important games in your, you know, of your of your childhood. And I was like, Final Fantasy one, Final Fantasy two, Final Fantasy three, and Final Fantasy Tech Tacs. Tactics? Tic Tacs. Tic Tacs. Yeah. yeah, I remember. I played Tactics. I remember that. Tactics was amazing. Um, I played. Final Fantasy... The fifth one was Castlevania Symphony of the Night, in case anyone was wondering. What was uh, what was the one with, uh, not Midgard, but uh, uh, the first time that came together? Was it 7? Uh, that... 7, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. played all the way through 7. Mm-hmm. I remember playing through all the way through that. I played through some of the other ones. I loved that they carried Sid through so many of them. Mm-hmm. He was one of my favorite characters, and seeing him always was like, oh, I've I've reached the point in the game that I like. You know, yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, a thing. yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think for me, a lot of my RPGs were very... 
uh, straight line, like, I played Zelda to, mm-hmm. to close, and I, I loved playing Zelda. I did not have the golden edition like some people had, but uh-huh. um, I, I distinctly remember playing all the way through that. But most of my RPGs were different than yours. Like, I I would have to say some of mine were, like, my Battletech RPGs that I played. Like, I played Crescent Honk's Revenge, uh-huh. and I considered that an RPG because the way that the story went together. Okay, okay, okay. Um, you felt very drawn into it. You yeah. felt put in, in the shoes of the protagonist. Oh, very much so. Yeah, very okay. much so. Um, and even some of the, the more side-scrolly games that were still... Um, that were still RPGs at a time. Castlevania was very much an RPG in in the way that its story was told. Mm-hmm. Um, it just was linear. That was it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were still building up a character and some of those things. I mean, you could say that Metroid isn't, but you well, I, I, you were always building up to a level that was everything. Effectively. I, I think um, I think that the, the role playing game, you know, what what kind of defines them in. in and see, this is one of those things that I always kind of had a had a little bit of a tricky thing was, and this kind of leads into our yeah, into our main exactly. topic here is that what defines a role playing game in uh in video games is different from what defines a role playing game in the tabletop sense. And right. uh, I mean, I grew up with tabletops, and so when the word RPG started getting thrown around for uh, for uh, video games. Some of the things that got defined as video as RPGs and video games had me kind of roll in my eyes. I'm like, this is nothing like Dungeons and Dragons. This is nothing like like Palladium. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you're not even playing a character you get to create. You're playing set characters, and like, oh, because they have stats that level up, and you can tinker with their with their equipment. Suddenly, it's an RPG. Like, well, I mean, Ultima was kind mm-hmm. of uh the was kind of the one of the very first that was recognizable um where you built a character yeah and, yeah, yeah. and it you had a class and you you were defined and the story was a little different based mm-hmm. upon who you were um and you you kind of had to lean into those moments to to get um to see where they were going with those those types of story but really they were dungeon crawl they were true D and D style original D and D style mm-hmm. games mm-hmm. it wasn't until much later um, where we had you know um, a more open world maybe not as open world but more open world where you could go back and forth to places like you did in Final Fantasy where you could beat the game without doing everything and the side quests and things like that, where yeah. there was a linear yeah. progression, but at the same time, there were other stories to be told, little things and, and side things. And I think that's really where I saw the difference in RPGs is like, wait a second, what do you mean you did this thing? Oh, yeah, if you go to this town and you go up this thing and talk to this girl, she'll say that she you know, she was looking for this flower. But then during this other part of the game, if you're in this certain quest and you go through this side chamber, there's a flower there that you can pick up and it becomes an item then when you go back to her it gives it to her but otherwise you can't sell it or do anything with it but if you give it to her this whole thing happens you're like how the hell where was that well, in the yeah, game right like i i played this game four times i never found that yeah. exactly <laughs> yeah no, and, no, no, and exactly. that's really where those exactly. kind of aspects came from and mm-hmm. i think that really kind of helped push those extra storylines and and gave people something else to look forward to so i think that's where the the idea of open world in games really started to blossom. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. we have things like The Witcher, you know, uh, Skyrim. You've got uh, in MMOs where you can pretty much go ever and go wherever and do whatever you want. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that doesn't follow a main plot line. And I think that's kind of its own discussion to be had that we'll get to. Um, but when we're talking about a open world game we're talking about one that isn't a game on a strict game on rails right, right where right, you right. get to see a giant map and do things uh horizon zero dawn is a good good mm-hmm. example of that mm-hmm. um and uh um mmos as a whole for the most part are are yeah. that in in spades yeah. but even like you know we, we've talked about like the division two is a game we play mm-hmm. um you know that that's i mean it's a little directed in that there is zones kind of have like you know difficulty to them that you kind of want to start in, in a certain area and go yeah. a certain way but like there's nothing saying you have to do no you know a, a then b then c you know mm-hmm. you can technically skip directly to c if you want you know yeah um things like that and, and i think that's 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 that also kind of goes in the open worlds it, it, what it does is it puts the choice in the hands of the players, right? Uh, rather than the either the game or the the game master that is that is telling the story. Um, and I, I think that's that's the the main thing that those those have in common between tabletop RPGs and video games. Um, 
is uh, just just the the idea of not telling a story that's always constantly driving the action, but more sitting back and saying, "Hey, players, what do you guys want to do?" Exactly. There's a big world out there, you know. Exactly, and and so when you when you try and translate something like that to a tabletop RPG, because you don't have the graphics necessarily, because you don't have all of the information available to players, it can get kind of daunting to try and figure out how do I do an open world design? Oh, right. right how do right, I right. apply those rules over to a, to a tabletop session or a, a virtual session, mm-hmm. you know, in a way that makes sense? Now, there's obviously tools and stuff to help you graphically, you know, to present things. There's... um. Uh, Anvil, World Anvil, so World trying, Anvil, yeah, yeah, World Anvil, which is a really great tool. There's a lot of people who use that. Go take a look at it um, for for being able to take maps and link data and information so that the players have a little bit more that they can get their hands on. Yep, yep. Um, it's a wonderful tool for that. Um, and uh, um, there's a few other. I mean, obviously D and D Beyond has assets within it that allow you to have, um, you know. Uh, chunks of your story, per, you know, progressed there where you can post information. I do it for mine when I can remember. You're very diligent about it. I'm mm-hmm. not so bad. Um, you know, using Discord channels and things like that to be able to post stuff is great, but it still doesn't give you the actual teardown of what you need. What is the the basic requirements? So one of the things that the re- one of the reasons why I kind of picked this was I kind of wanted to do a little bit of a teardown with Sarah, and and give out some of the points that games really do well, and apply those to standard rpgs yeah there's there there it's not a one-to-one comparison by any means but i think there's a lot of very valuable lessons that we can learn from our open world games our favorite open world games like skyrim uh morrowind uh if you're old school oblivion um and uh you know other a lot of other games like that even even games like the witcher assassin's creed you know uh there's there's a lot of valuable lessons there um I think probably the the first one um, that that I, I really like um, that I think translates really well to tabletop is the location based storytelling. Oh yes, yes. Um, and it, it's it's kind of something that I've I've done uh, a bit in my own game. Um, like we've talked about how we've got all the little villages up in the Colovian Highlands mm-hmm. where where my game is currently taking place. Um, and when I when I laid that out, um, my goal was essentially to give each little town a story. Yes. And so whenever it didn't matter where you went, wherever you went would have something going on. Right. And you know? and that's reiterated in games that a lot of times. The travels, not so much. Like in in most MMOs, there's like you know things along the way, but right, you right, can right. pretty much ride past those or just move to the next place. But when you get there, there are quest givers and mm-hmm. people wandering on. It's it's an active area, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it's it's still a hub. It's not necessarily where the action's happening necessarily, mm-hmm. but it is where you will start every time, and yes. that's the concept of of having a safe. Uh, place from threats and challenges um but you'll still have events that change it mm-hmm. you'll still have mishaps or, or plot triggers that are going to occur there um so that the players don't have to make life and death decisions in that space right, right they right, can right. sit it's, back. it's always home exactly and... um i think it's I think going along right with that is also the trusted locations. If you're going to meet someone at a location and you know you're getting there, that it might be a camp, it might be the edge of a cave, it might be, you know, a dock or a boat that's that's waiting for you. Mm-hmm. You know that that's a trusted location. It's another little home base basically. It's essentially your allies' home base. Correct. Um yeah. but it's very clear in the in in the way RPGs handle it because you know who is a threat and who is not a threat mm-hmm. immediately when you step up and i think that's something that you can translate into a game you can make that known to your players that you know this is a safe space it's it's how you present it it's how calm it is to you in the way that you're casual in discussion of what they can find and what's there sometimes if your players are are getting a little too edgy like they're they're waiting for something to jump out at them or something Mm. like that you can just be like this is a safe area, guys. I think I think this is one of the great places to use music. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, like I like to put on some real soothing music if I'm if I'm putting you guys in a position where um, you're in a safe place, you know, um, just to just something that, that sets the mood without me ever having to having to mention a word that you're not in any danger, you know. 
Um, and I think, I think it's really valuable. Like, especially for, for groups that aren't looking for, you know, intrigue and subterfuge in their games. Like if you're trying to play a real, like, like a four color superhero style game or just a very black and white Mm -hmm. adventurers and villains, you know, style game, um, Arguably, it wouldn't really lend itself to something like Shadowrun because the setting itself is super ambiguous and everybody's kind of a bad guy in a way. But um, I think like there, there's a value in in storytelling in knowing that there are a, a distinct line of demarcation between your villains and your heroes. And I think the idea of having safe spaces where you know nothing bad is going to happen really lends itself to that. Yeah, and I and I'm not gonna say like it's a it's an early trait of uh storytelling or something like that. Like, you know, when you're when you have young players, this is a good place to start. But you know, I, I don't think it has anything to do with that. No, I think no, it, no. everything has to do with your setting. It's a it's a style and setting choice. It's a style but style I think setting choice, yeah. But I do think it tends to, to to make it feel a little bit easier as a storyteller to tell the story because your players aren't constantly on edge waiting for something like in Shadowrun, you can make your bar or wherever you're meeting your Johnson be known as a safe space by like having people come in and give up their weapons. And you always know that there's a professionalism with your Johnsons and things like that. You can kind of establish that uh, to a degree or or that your dock wagon space is well, you know, your dock that you go to is a safe space. You can create those in stories just as they are in action movies. You know, even though hell is just outside the door, it doesn't mean that this, because the door is closed, you're a little bit safe. Like the hotel in John Wick. Exactly. But even, even that, they kind of broke their own rules there, but they changed by that point. You're, you're neck deep in the story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're prepared to, you're prepared to flip the plot. And your your characters are prepared because they're the ones who flipped it. Right, right, right. Like right. you broke the rule, you now know the consequences. No different than if in an MMO you steal from one of the guards. Mm-hmm. Sorry, so <laughs> you're spe- now hunted by the town. <laughs> Speaking of MMOs, though, yes. Um, and you, you and I have been uh, playing Elder Scrolls Online a little bit, just a little bit. Yeah. Um, I'm 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 old hat at it, so I'm I'm kind of used to it. You're you're starting to get into it though. Um. And one of the things that uh, that that I think that that game, and I, I've seen a few other games do this uh, really well, is the like unified iconography. Like, yes. When you walk in, you know, um, they have taken the time to establish that the Fighters Guild uses red banners with a sword pointing down on them. Yep. The Mages Guild is a an eye mm-hmm. inside of a star. Yep. Um, and so. When you see those icons, you know instantly what you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And the little things like the bank and the blacksmith and stuff that all have their own icons and whatnot. But um, but I think the the importance that you draw from that into your, um, into your tabletop games is making sure that groups have unified iconography. Yes. So when you say like, okay, you walk into the town and you know the the, the, bu- the building right before you is, um, you know, three stories tall and made of carved granite, elaborate, you know, uh, elaborate etchings on it with little carvings and such like that. Um, tall windows and long red banners with swords pointed down on them. Mm-hmm. All of your players, without you ever having said the words "Fighters Guild," know what it is. Should know what they're looking at. Right. Right. Likewise, if they, you know, roll up to a camp, an encampment and they see a bunch of tents and one of the standards, you know, on their way in is a giant green standard with a sword pointing down on it. Mm-hmm. Oh, what the hell's the Fighters Guild doing here? Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. and it, maybe it's a recruitment. Maybe it's a different camp. Maybe a fight's going on and they're the ones leading it. Now, now you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it makes it makes the world feel connected that way. Exactly. Um, so... I, I think doing kind of universal iconography helps, but not only does does it help you and your players, but it also helps tell the story of the area. Not everyone is highly educated. Not everyone who comes to this town instantaneously knows to ask somebody where a certain thing is. There mm-hmm. aren't signs for everything outside of every door that's words. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, that kind of signage probably was is and wasn't that common. Like, if you walk down the street and you want to know where the hospital is... 
there's a blue, usually a blue sign with a, you know, with a white symbol on it. And you're like, oh, that means there's a hospital nearby. The words underneath it usually tell me the distance and direction. Mm -hmm. You know, it's things like that that you have to go to the least common denominator. Foreigners will not always know where things are. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, they don't even have to be that foreign. They could literally be two cities over and they still don't know where things are. Right, right, right. So keep that in mind for your, uh, for your players doing the same thing. Um When you're dealing with the interaction on those people in the town, that's where we've, we've kind of talked about before is that you'll always have, you know, individuals that are just milling around, but it's up to you as the storyteller to direct them to the NPCs that are important. In games, they put a little diamond over their head or something, and you know that that's the person that they can talk to. Right. Or or uh, my, my favorite thing is, like, in MMOs and, like, even in even Skyrim, yeah. you know, like, this is, oh, this is the city, the city of Falkreath. Oh, those four buildings over there? That's the city? Yeah. Eh? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's only one blacksmith in town. If right. If you need blacksmithing supplies, guess where you're going, right. you know? But, like, in, 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 in tabletop RPGs, you don't necessarily need to do that. Mm-hmm. Or do you? Well, I think one of the things you brought up today earlier without realizing it is that one of the things as a storyteller you can do to add life to that is have someone hawking. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, maybe there's a young lad outside of the... The, the blacksmith shop talking up the, the, the finest of the armors and pointing out, you know, weak ch- links in people's chain mail that's falling off. And, you know, and now he can direct them to Falgar, the, you know, b- local blacksmith. Or I, I dare say you don't even need to. Mm-hmm. Because if they say, I want to go to a blacksmith, guess who that blacksmith's going to be? It's, it's sure, fun. you've got infinite selection. There's blacksmiths all over there. We pick the third one on the left. Cool, it's Falgar. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, but... But the the important thing is is that um, first off, you know, bring bring life to your NPCs. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it may seem like simple blacksmith is not somebody that you're going to need to really put pour some uh, some character into, but I encourage you to, you know, make that make that shopping experience, um, you know, a, a role playing experience. Make it a fun thing. Give them some personality. Give them something to complain about or something to compliment them on or a flamboyant personality in some way. You know, um. So when they come back to this place later and they're like, we need to go to the blacksmith, we're going to Falgar's, you know? Um, <laughs> Sorry, I just saw Nox's thing, and I agree. It's it's a neat thing that you could do, and I've seen it a few oh, times. One town where one guy has five different jobs. And just He's just a different person. Every, like, you're like, was, aren't, aren't you? There was an episode with a Avatar that did that. Yeah, yeah. where the guy literally <laughs> just changes hats and he's nope, like... that was my brother. brother. <laughs> it was a swamp, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yes, yes. Um... But uh, I, you know, have have recurring NPCs, and I, th- I think that's that's the big important thing. So, like when I when I write down my my towns, um, typically I, I go through and I pre I pre prep a handful of NPCs for mm-hmm. you guys, um, a couple of common professions, mm-hmm. and then like five other random names that are just there. Mm-hmm. Okay, now this helps with two things. First off, you jerks always ask me what's this NPC's name, and I have the answer. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I have the answer because I know you're going to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and just have a little snippet of personality for him and stuff like that. But, like, if you guys say, okay, well, we're going to go and buy maps, well, I already know that, um, you know, there's a general goods store, there's a cartographer or whatever that's going to have those maps, and I already have that NPC's name written down. Um, and you really don't need to do much more than that. Like, you don't need to get into the nitty gritty of, like, what's their inventory or what does their shop even look like. You just. But just have the NPC, give them a name, give them a snippet of personality, mm-hmm. and just be prepared. If yeah. they look for blacksmithing supplies, have a blacksmith. If they were going to the tavern, have the innkeeper. Yeah. You know, have what the tavern looks like. All taverns need personality. Their characters mm-hmm. in and of themselves. Yeah. You know, but have these locations ready and flesh them out just enough to make them characters in and of themselves. Right. And so when your characters go there, they'll be memorable and they will go back. Correct. And And that's part of that home base is that... Your your reoccurring characters have certain tropes about them, uh-huh. and if they remember those tropes, it helps them, and it brings the life and, and reduces the pile that you have as a storyteller. Um, another good thing to do is just have a list of things that they're working on, so mm-hmm. that they're, they're not just waiting for the players to show up. You know, 
if it's a blacksmith, maybe he's working on something, working on a sword or a locket or an existing job that he's got to do. So he has a drive. He doesn't, he's not just waiting around for them. He's hammering something like, hey, we need you to take care of it. It's like, I'm currently working on something, dude. Mm-hmm. Like, w- w- what do you want? What do you, you know? So it, it just occurred to me um, about making your NPCs memorable mm-hmm. um, is uh, your favorite NPC from The Division 2. Oh, God. He's a weapon vendor. Can you tell me his name? No. You know, neither can I. Nope. You know, but what what does he what does he do? What does he say, Rob? Whenever you're done with him, he always says that just filled up my inventory and slurps his coffee, and I want to shoot him every damn time, every single time. But you remember that yep. it is an interesting character trait, yep. whether it annoys you or not. Correct. It is an interesting and memorable character trait. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. And that is a valuable lesson from video games, right there. Yep. So I think this is as good as a place as any to kind of break this apart because we're talking about location and you kind of made a point that it it really was a good place Um, was that there's kind of two views to this. And that is when your story goes theme park Mm -hmm. or character driven. Yes. Yeah. And I I think you're when when you start talking about location based storytelling. Right. um, You know, every place has a story. You know, you you, you break off from your quest hub. Mm hmm. You go to either location A, location B, or location C, mm-hmm. and when you get there, something will be going on that is specific to that location. Right. Oh, thank goodness, a hero is here to save us because, mm-hmm. boy, is things messed up, mm-hmm. and you're you're now our savior. And so that's the video game way of doing it. I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to be so... Dramatic. Dramatic and yeah. in your face in a tabletop game, but I think it's valuable that every place has kind of a kind of a thing going on. And mm-hmm. you may not be, you know, the big darn savior, but it, it does then beg the question of when you start writing these location based um uh things, do you do it as a theme park mm-hmm. or do you do it character driven? So theme park, and we're talking far, we're, we're going far to one direction. Right. So you the know, extreme theme park is where you've got an open world, um, but each location is not dependent on the character. The character could literally be, as I put it <laughs> earlier, <laughs> a, a lampshade, lampshade with a hand grenade. Because <laughs> they could solve the problem just as easily as you could. It doesn't matter what your personality is. It doesn't matter what your background is. They don't care. Like, oh, you're just another grunt. Here, get in, the, you know, get in there and grind. There is nothing tying your specific character to that plot. You just yeah. happen to be the right person at the right time to solve their problems. Right. Or solve a problem within the list of litany of things that you may not be able to solve all of. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, they don't. there's no expectation that you're going to solve everything. But this one particular thing will make what they're doing is easy, easier and therefore make a change in the area. And probably from the theme park perspective, that problem was going on before you got there. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do anything to affect directly, will be going on after you leave. Yeah. On the other hand, you have a character driven, which is on the far other side of the scale, where your character have histories they're attached to things and they literally have effects for instance your father was the you know is the master of arms at this other place so when you go there your dad's there that Mm. changes that location right it makes it personal for that character no different than if the group like in 7c are musketeers granted they're part of a group but they're also gaining affluence and changing when they go to areas Mm -hmm. that affects everything about that and therefore now instead of it just being a location that they show up at and have a little bit of an effect they are directly involved in the plot and effects that happen there Mm -hmm. and are tied to it so the 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 big thing you want to when when you're making location based based uh, uh based plots and stuff of like that if you're if you are going to go go ahead and do things that way mm-hmm. um is you you need to figure out and and i don't think there's really a right or wrong answer to this no it's just it's it's more of a personal thing just something you should probably be conscious of is how where where in the theme park versus character background mm-hmm. are you going with your plot you know yep. how much do you want to tie it specifically to the characters how much do you want to just leave it very open that the characters just happen to be wandering into? Right. There are midpoints to this conversation. Sure. Obviously, there's nothing to say that you can't have some of your players who are running, a th- who are part of a theme park, and maybe like two of your players who are really involved, and they're actually part of the plot, and, and maybe that's just the dynamic of your group. But I think overall, 
you're going to lean one direction or the other within a story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think discovering how your players like to play will determine that a lot and then determine the investment that you really want to put into that. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, I think the, 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 uh, main complication with making it more character driven, um, is that the characters tend to start personalizing it then. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, because it is personal. And you start bringing in aspects of characters, you know, characters' backgrounds and stuff that you're going to make it more personal and it makes the world feel a lot smaller. Um, at that point, it makes things feel a lot more um, pinpoint and pressure that uh, they they personally need to deal with things. You know, um, I think theme parking things allows them a little more choice. It makes the world feel a lot more open. Yes, I and and I don't again. I don't want to say that it's easier, but I tend to believe theme parking is much easier if you tend to have a very flexible group that is coming in and out. Maybe you have people who don't show up at certain times because then if the group is down three people and the group's like, yeah, we really don't want to go do that thing without them. What else else could we do tonight? Oh, well we still have that thing involving the the thieves. Oh yeah, let's go do handle that. I mean the, the, the obvious, the obvious con of, of leaning too far into theme park though, is that you end up with, um, disaffected players. Yes. I mean, wh- why do we care? Yeah. Let's move on. This doesn't yeah. involve us. Let's go. Exactly. You know, exactly. And maybe sometimes that's an answer. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's an answer. But, you know, if if you don't throw a li- at least a little personal hook in there, you're going to end up with characters going like, oh, gee, that's a really, really, really sad story you just told me. Anyway, we got to go. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, is how much do they affect the setting around them? Mm-hmm. They may not be personally involved, but the setting keep, may keep evolving. For instance, maybe the area is downtrodden and, you know, because uh, bandits are everywhere. And after clearing through a bunch of the bandit quests, the area is really not so bad. And now there's more merchants and things like that. It doesn't necessarily make it personal, but it definitely shows reward. Sure, 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 sure. So, sure. Um, so we want to talk about pacing a little bit? Um, Yeah, we can move into pacing i mean we skipped over a small section but i think we could come back to that yeah so um so, right, so it could be, and, and this, 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 i i i think the reason we bring this up is because uh, i i it kind of branches off of the whole uh discussion of your you know of, of how how to structure your plots is then how to pace your plots um is allowing the players to set that pace correct you know so when, you know, kind of branching off of what we're talking about the theme park is that with with an open world style game like this, you put the power of progressing the plot. Oh, that's a lot of P words. That's a lot of P's. Um, uh, put the power of progressing the plot in a pickled pack. Progressively pickled, with progressively, the players. Yes, with the players. Um, Perpetuating the... <laughs> nope, 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 can't do we're it. Not gonna do no, it. we're not going to do it. No, we're not going to do it. Uh... It's basically putting putting that power in the in, in in the hands of the players to advance the plot. Um, so uh, they know they can kind of like again if you've established that home base location, mm-hmm. they can just go back and chill if they want to. You know, yeah. if they want to look, we're going to take a week to just make some potions. Yeah, tend our gear, do some crafting. I'm going to go visit my wife. Yeah, you know, on yeah. on on the farm, make right. sure she's okay. Right, know, I'm I'm going to make some food. We're gonna. Work on this kind of stuff because they know that the plot will still be there mm-hmm. when they're ready for it. And some game sessions, they can just en- enjoy a safe space even. Not necessarily their home base, but they know that this is a safe zone so that they can take a personal break. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think Critical Role does this really well. Critical Role does this exceptionally well, yeah. And you, they know when they're at a pause mm-hmm. and that the players can then explore... They can have discussions about what just happened in character. They can talk about the conflicts of those moments. They can bring up things that they've discovered or or where things are going with things. Or even just take some time to reveal some backstory to one another. Exactly. Okay, so who's on watch right now? Right. Oh, you too? Okay, cool. Is there anything you want to do? Exactly. You know, yeah, uh, I walk up to him and I say, you know, hey, uh, you, you mentioned this earlier. What's going on with that? And then a 45-minute, dis- well, I mean, 45 minutes in critical role. I don't know if you want to do this in your right, tabletop right. game. Respect your player's time. But I think um, I think some of the players uh, in both of our games over time have had some inter-party discussion that's gone for a little while. Yeah. I think Surprisingly, I, my, heck, me and uh, me and uh, uh, Memnon in your last game, very much so, very much so. We had a whole discussion about uh, teleportation and, mm-hmm. and and that sort of you know, just 
It was it was great though. But it it allows <laughs> those save zones are not just for the players. They're literally for you to take a breath, review a few things, listen a little to what they're doing, and enjoy your players' enjoyment. Yeah, exactly. So. I think some of the best times have been had when uh, you have those quiet moments and, like, the storyteller doesn't have to say anything for 15 whole minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really nice. Because I've been in some games where I've had to drag the players through and I'm like, okay, Mm -hmm. what do you guys want to do? Yeah. All right, well, let me give some more narration since you guys aren't going to talk. <laughs> and it gets exhausting. It does. <laughs> a it little is, bit. It so can be. If you can get your characters into a, into a, a safe space where they can just open up with each other and just role play amongst themselves, man, take that as the gift that it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it is mm-hmm. great. Um, so then you've got your reward system. Yeah, and I know we kind of went back and forth about this um, first part, which is that one of the things that games do te- technically really well is they put the reward in the front. You know effectively what you're going to get. If you do this quest, you will receive this magical battle axe. Or this other option. Or or, your, or the NPC will literally tell you, like, oh, I can, I'll give you all the gold in my pocket. It's not much, but it's mm-hmm. the best I can do. And so you know you're going to get a gold reward out of it. Or they're telling you, like, oh, yeah, we need you to retrieve this relic, but uh, there's probably a lot of other stuff down there. You're welcome to any of it, you know, kind of a thing. I just need this one thing. And rewards don't have to be tangible either. Correct. Like they, they can be They can be things like, oh, well, yeah. Yeah, uh, I'd love to let you through this gate, but there's a marauding monster on the other side of it. You take care of that monster, you can have as much safe patches passage up and down this road as you want. Exactly. Or you'll, you know, yeah, we'll definitely, uh, we can't make you part of the guild, but we can definitely give you a writ. Mm-hmm. You know, and now you can work with the guild and uh, get our discounts or something like that. Sure, sure. Um, just as much as any of the nobles giving you a favor. But, you know? but, but the idea is put the reward out there mm-hmm. so that it's not ambiguous at all what they're going to do. is <laughs> Dangle the carrot, as Knox says. Yes. Yeah, and it's it's not so much dangling the carrot to drag them into it, but it's setting yourself up even before you might write the adventure to go along with it that your players have a direction mm-hmm. and they have drive and you can see that drive you don't have to make that carrot giant you just need to make it available to them so that they can immediately say yeah let's go do that thing and now you're like okay now i know where these players are going to go and how interested they are in it well not only that but it also puts puts a lot of power in the hands of the players to be able to strategize Mm-hmm. You know, if they know that there is a reward that they can get that may be a good solution for another problem that they're having, mm-hmm. now suddenly they're like, well, shoot, we do A to get the thing and then use the thing to do B. Yeah. Like, that's that's easy. Now now, now we know exactly where we're going. And then watching them do that, you as the storyteller get to say, well, cool, I need to write A and I don't have to write B until next week. Exactly. <laughs> I've <got> like time. <laughs> you know, reducing the numbers or supplies for something else. So now that they know the big bad guy is not going to have the thing because you just removed it from play by doing the side quest. Mm-hmm. You know, but at the same time, the one part that I'm going to say is don't do, at least not too often, the your princess is in another castle. When you when you present something as a reward, as a as a thing that's going to be there at the end, don't take it away without there being other rewards I'm that were received. I mean, if it's <laughs> if it's a perceived end, and then you take it, you're, you're cliffhanging, and now the players are concerned because they don't necessarily know what's next. I I, I kind of did that at the end of my last game. I'm mm-hmm. so sorry. Yeah, you, you reward blocked. <laughs> yeah, it was. As as I said to you earlier, it was it was, it was a moment of me reading the room, mm-hmm. and the the room the room was in a in a distinct mood of okay, we've been playing forever. Let's let's quit for the night, please. Yep. And I I didn't want to hold you guys any longer to tack on the scene that I had at the end of it. So I thought, you know, I can just do this at the beginning of next game, and I ended the game. But I did not realize that, that soured the reward you guys had. Yeah. Yeah. Nice, uh, nice knocks. The the, but <laughs> the su- peanuts suffice, suffice to say, there will be payoff for it. I, just didn't give it to you at the end of last game. We, I am certain we will see something at the <laughs> end of it. Um, the other thing is, is the finish line is not necessarily the reward. Mm-hmm. Making sure that you have victory conditions that are clear. Yes. I, yes. I love that about one thing about games is that you look at the boss's life. You watch it go down. You know, you know that when the boss's life goes down, it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to die, but you know that the fight is over. Well, right. But not, not only that, but like, I mean, take uh, like our experience with Ghost Recon Wildlands. Yep. Perfect. Here is the list of drug lords you will be taking down. Right. 
when you eliminate all of these drug lords, you will get to take down the kingpin drug lord. Right. Or you only need this many to be able to get enough intel to find his location, but there's a benefit right. to doing the rest. Right. Yeah. Right, right. But but the fact is they gave us milestones. They gave us clear victory conditions, and we mm-hmm. knew what we were working for. Even we were getting into all sorts of different missions, going all sorts of different places, flying yep. all over the place, getting different things. But we, we never lost sight of, okay, in this zone is this boss, and when we kill this boss, this boss, and this boss, this other one will show up, and we need to take him down to get to the last guy. Exactly. You know? And yeah. so it doesn't need to be necessarily so convoluted in um, your uh, in your tabletop game, but at least spelling out that, like, for instance, in my game, mm-hmm. um, the Bandit King has three lieutenants. Yep. You take care <laughs> of those three lieutenant problems, however. And he becomes a kitten. Correct. Uh, and you can easily topple his empire. So, yep. yep. Yeah. It's it's a it's a quick little victory condition that's it's pretty well spelled out for you guys mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. um, Critical Role season one did this really well okay uh, in fact twice believe it or not okay um, the first uh, the first major arc in the game was the Chroma Conclave okay um, and five chromatic dragons all working together uh, attacked Exandria mm-hmm. um, and they, they took a little bit to kind of regroup from the initial attacks and stuff like that. And it mm-hmm. was um, put forth to them that if they collected the vestiges of divergence, these powerful magical artifacts, they would be equipped enough to, to fight these dragons. Right. And they were essentially given a list of a shopping list of, of these different uh, different artifacts. Pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward. Get all the artifacts. And when you feel ready, go fight the dragons. Yep. And then... It moved on where uh, the the Vecna plotline plotline came in, mm-hmm. and you have Vecna who is attempting to ascend to godhood mm-hmm. and basically take the place of the current goddess of death. Mm-hmm. Um, and even that kind of had a a thing because they had to get the favor of a bunch of different gods to be able to do anything to him because he mm-hmm. was a demigod. Yep, you know, um, and to stop him from ascending. So there was these three. Um, spears essentially that they needed to make mm-hmm. uh and so there was these quests they had to go on they're like we're not going to be able to stop him from ascending to godhood without these things mm-hmm. one two three mm-hmm. you know easy victory conditions so having those clear cut definitions let the players know right where they had to head for the next thing mm-hmm. and when something was a problem if they couldn't get something yeah exactly yeah. so exactly um the kind of thing that I tacked on the end, which I thought was kind of came out of it, is that almost every game has a tutorial at the beginning. Yeah. When you make your character, you get to play and do all of the things. Like, shoot me with your bow. That's pretty good. You know, now try and dodge this. You know, you get to play your character. There's nothing to say that you couldn't do that at a tabletop for people right. who have never played the system. How many times have you wanted something like that before getting into, a, into an RPG system? How many times have we done it for some of our players? Yeah, we have, yeah. I mean, I know you did it for my wife. When uh-huh. she was starting out as a Sazic, she's like, I don't really understand the dice mechanics behind this or, or want to do things. Sometimes it's as simple as, hey, here's your here's your quick card of things that you do, mm-hmm. you know, so that you know what your action economy is. And there's nothing to say you couldn't do that space both outside of continuity, uh, continuity of your game, but also still in session. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's zero or one, depending on how you look at it, whether it's your milk run that you're doing, but it's out of continuity and they're able to do what they want. But at the end, if they feel something's out of sorts with their character or not quite what they want, let them fix it. Yep. Because you're just in tutorial mode, effectively. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I let you guys revamp your characters up till, like, I think level four or something like that. I give yeah. you a whole level where you were just like, look, we've had five game sessions, you know. This how sucks. Do you, how do you feel? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. Okay. I I love that flexibility. There's no reason you shouldn't. I mean, let people. Yeah. It's it's a story. Let people enjoy the game. Yeah, just just let them let them respect whatever. Yeah, know? if they want their eyes to be blue instead of green, that's fine. <laughs> it's it says it says gray eyes, but but they're really blue. Yes. 
I'd like to get to these questions because they're really good and we're, I want to watch the time a little bit on this. So. Oh, some phenomenal questions here. All right. Where do you want to start? Uh, just, uh, you know, Hulavu shoots his questions so f- infrequently. Okay. They're always so good. All right, let's do this. Uh, so Hulavu asks, uh, one of the things a computer does well is automate the player management, e.g. encumbrance, inventory, mm-hmm. money, sure. um, and, and environment, e.g. mundane items, climate. Mm-hmm. How can we implement these types of mechanics in our games in a way that is, one, is not overbearing, and two, drives the story forward? Obviously, you cannot implement all all the mechanics all the time, so do you have suggestions for when to use different mechanics? I always feel like encumbrance and inventory and money are there when the players want an additional challenge. So, like, in some games, you can crank up the difficulty, whether that changes, like, you know, your your crit range or how well you can hit or, you know, whether or not, you know, you have auto clutch because you're driving or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, those types of things. Players, I think you have to, at a tabletop game, you kind of have to gauge where they're at with the system yeah. and decide whether or not they want an additional challenge. At that point, you're flexible to do what you want with those and gauge their levels. I mean, I know there was actually someone's write-up where they simply said, like, you can have, you know, uh, one weapon in each hand, you know, or one, you know, weapon slash melee in each hand, whether it's a shield or shield, and then one on your back. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Mm-hmm. Like, that was your weapon total. You could then have, uh, you know, uh, a pouch for money, which mm-hmm. was unlimited effectively, and uh, a an unlimited um, spell components pouch. But beyond that, you had one pack. Mm-hmm. which was your adventurer's pack. That was it. You weren't allowed to carry the whole world on you. If you wanted something else, you had to have a pack animal or a cart. And I was like, okay, that's a pretty simple encumbrance system that keeps the weights down. It doesn't seem like it's anything else. Armor basically just has its basic problems. Yeah, sure. But other than that, it's not like you have four sets of armor and you know three helms and whatever sitting around. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to be modif- you know design yourself around that. But yeah, I think it's I I think it's 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 really up to you know the the players really how deep they want to go into something like that because like I, I don't I, I i like to think i would like that style game but i don't think i would yeah i think it, i think it gets too deep and i think those mechanics can get challenging um i have seen a couple of write-ups where people say the only time that you come up with that is bef- like you have a prep moment at the beginning of the adventure because you actually start um uh um in res yeah. so before in res, you look at your players and say, okay, you were climbing up the mountain, blah, 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 blah. What gear do you have? And then they list out the things that they brought with them on that particular adventure out oh, of their okay, stuff. Okay, okay, okay. Because um, they know what's going on and they're starting in res, you know. Um, and media res. Yeah. Um, and in this case, like, I, I kind of like that idea, but I also still think that that eats up time of storytelling. Uh, yeah, I, I tend to think so, too. And I, I've rarely ran into a situation where I wished that I had done micromanagement of encumbrance and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that when I hadn't. Yeah. I think it I think it muddles the game for most of the styles that I tend to the storytelling that yeah. I tend to do. Uh, as for mechanics like, um, you know, climate. Oh, yeah. And, and, and rain and stuff like that. Um. I think that the general rule I go on is you can either have a simple encounter that is combat heavy or you can have a com or you can have a complicated encounter where it's like raining or dark or something like that where you've got an added mm-hmm. um difficulty measure but you have to tone the encounter down mm-hmm. at that point because you start your combat starts turning into a slog mm-hmm. when uh like you've got eight opponents and it's dark, and it's raining, so, like, everything is at disadvantage, and the archer can't hit anything because, mm-hmm. you know, the wind is blowing their arrows all around and stuff like that. And it, it, it tends to start getting into a slog. What you can do, though, is you can build a small, tidy encounter that would be, like, a medium-difficulty encounter, mm-hmm. ordinarily, a, a minor speed bump for you guys, but add the twist. Almost consider it an extra combatant. Yeah. So, like, you can have five assassins, or you can have three assassins and darkness. Or you can have, you know, a chase with, you know, four guards who you're chasing uh, in a a carriage that you have to catch, Mm -hmm. you know. Or you could have 
three or two with the carriage, and you're riding through a burning forest. Yes. Yes, exactly. You know, um, and or, or through a war zone. You're chasing someone down through the trenches. You know, that's a hard chase on its own. Yeah. Now you're doing it through an active battle that you're not involved in, you know? Yeah, I, I, I think... Um... My main takeaway from this is, you know, make make sure you tone it down if you're going to add in additional stuff. And also, I would say do it, keep it for dramatic purposes. Always. Yeah. Like, I, I think an occasional, like, the big bad guy being, being a, you know, being a fight is cool. Mm-hmm. Big bad guy fight in a raging storm where you can only see things every third turn when the mm-hmm. lightning flashes. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe you guys are all in a keep and outside it's storming horribly and... You take the fight out onto the ramparts, right? Right. And now the thunder and lightning changes the whole fight. That's great, mm-hmm. but d- just do that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that, that's it. I don't yeah. want every fight to be that. You know? Right. Exactly. So you know, unless you're going to have extreme weather conditions, I would say like keep keep most of your encounters in the middle eighty percent and don't worry about it. Yep. Use flowery descriptions of the weather at that point. Yeah. You know. Um. Knox had a question. Yes. With the projection allowing players to take the vagueness and tailor a highly personal storytelling experience for themselves, how can we better determine and filter what things are important to include, what isn't, when crafting our rich lore to draw upon? With projection allowing players to take vagueness... And tailor a highly personal story until oh oh okay 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 I see what you're saying yeah uh, the the like the the mute protagonist correct and you just project yourself upon them I understand now okay uh, so you're talking uh, like Gordon Freeman you know from Half Life Two where mm-hmm. he doesn't he doesn't have a single line of dialogue in the entire time and it's a first person game so mm-hmm. everybody's looking directly at us calling us Gordon and telling us that uh yeah 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 um. Better determine and filter what things are important to include and what isn't. Crafting our rich lore to draw upon. Ah, uh, that's a deep question. It's it's a challenging question, and I think that when we're, we're when we're looking at games, like the difference is, is that in all of those games, the the protagonists always have an opinion of what the character is, mm-hmm. who you you as the character, you the player is. Um. And I think developing that determines how you want to turn your plot. Again, if the players aren't necessarily involved in the plot, the protagonist isn't going to recognize them. They aren't going to identify them or or set a tone to them other than in a general sense. On the other hand, if it is a character-driven story, they're going to see their deeds. They're going to feel the repercussions of their actions and change, but it still doesn't I don't think it changes the dialogue of what how the villain already sees them or the antagonist already sees them. The antagonist has had opinions since the beginning. Either you are the speed bump that is in the way and they already have an opinion of who you are, regardless of how you project yourself. <laughs> you know, and so I, I go to a portal like from the beginning, GLaDOS had an opinion of who Shell was. Okay. It, it didn't matter whether you were nice to the gun drones or not. Sure. It sure. didn't matter. They had an opinion that you were just like everybody else. And then as the story progresses, it goes through this antagonistic method to an aggressive, to a questioning of your intelligence, to a, you're just a fly on the wall that's really annoying to me. And instead, I can't, because I can't slap you, I'm, I'm just not going to deal with you anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of a situation. And I think having an, having your, villain your antagonist however be prepared to handle those on a i you're a thing kind of mentality definitely gives you an edge of working with that the moment that your players start having this direct effect a reputation start building things that's where it can get challenging and that's where i think you have to start thinking more as your antagonist and where things are going but i still think you would do the same for any of the the lessers, the lieutenants or henchmen, however you'd want it, they're still going to have a a base feeling about things mm-hmm. that can change moment to moment. You know, of like, oh my god, this is the bad guy. You know, these are the these are the bad guys. We're going to go stop them. Oh wait, 
they have guns and we don't because they just disarmed us. <laughs> I'm leaving. You know, those kind of things are running away or, or noticing they're too powerful or even turn coding at certain times if it's a lieutenant that you're able to do that with. But again, keeping their observations simple, their responses simple. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess for, 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 for my reaction to this, though, uh, I, I think the, the whole mute protagonist, uh, now that I'm giving them some thought, is um, it's a cheap way out that video games take uh, to mm-hmm. make them universal experiences for everybody. Right. Um, so that they can project onto a wide variety of potential players. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think you need to do that in a tabletop game. I mean, we, There's we, we did, we did talk it, about but... the we did talk a little bit about the theme parking and stuff with like that, yeah. but like, I I think if you do have a you know small number of players that you know mm-hmm. that you know, I don't I don't really think that projecting upon a, a a mute protagonist like that is really a I don't think it's a thing, and I think I think if you are trying to do that to kind of make a universal experience that doesn't necessarily you know isn't necessarily personalized to the uh, p- particular player, I think you're falling short as a storyteller. I, well, I think you're not telling a full story. I think you are, you're telling an adventure. And you're I telling think, a story. I you're think just... it's a module at that point. Yeah, you're telling a story at the character, not, not right. with you're, the you're, character. You're yeah. hard theme parking is yeah. what you're doing at that point. Yes, 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 yes. And there, again, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but it's not, um, it's not the direction that we take as storytellers, and it's definitely a a lighter approach by far. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I I think that that really brings it back to the whole lampshade with a hand grenade thing. Yeah, like how yeah. far does your player like where do you put the weight? Mm-hmm. And again, your protagonist is going to do that, and some of your other characters are going to do that. So, yeah. uh, all right. So Overwatch asks: um, In video games, open world storytelling can lean more into world building rather than a linear plot, in order to give the player an RPG experience. How do you strike a good balance between world building and storytelling if you are trying for a similar experience on the tabletop? It's, I think it's presentation. Yeah. I think it really has to do with presentation because anyone can look at a tabletop game from a distance and say, this is just a linear RPG. Like, the, the, they, they don't have any control over this. He's mm-hmm. just driving it. And that's classic railroading 101. Yes. On the other hand, if your players, if you are giving your players options, meaning like you know the 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 head of the town says this, uh, but you know about you know the players start talking about a dungeon that they were wanting to explore, or someone says, hey, there's this lore that we need to find, you know, or hey, we've got this, you know, this map that gives them the availability to go and do what they want, and at that point, you are giving them abilities to stretch beyond the plot, the main plot. And, yeah. and handle it. I think your storytelling and your world building should go definitely hand in hand. Um, so, uh, for instance, um, a lot of my players in my game don't really have like the deep understanding of Elder Scrolls lore that I do. Right. Uh, so it's important for me to give them um, opportunities to learn that lore in game. Uh, so, for instance, um, one of my one of my main NPCs has asked them to go find a bunch of these things called Welkin stones, which are basically yep. mag- magical batteries. Yep. Um, explained the lore behind them, explained where they would be found, mm-hmm. explained who created them and all the history behind them, and now everybody at my table understands who the ancient aliens were. Mm-hmm. You know, and they understand the significance of these things, and they understand you can't make more of them because we don't know how. Right. You know, but what is this? That's a fetch quest. Yeah. It's a go into the dungeon and get these things fetch quest, but. I've given them enough lore and world building with it mm-hmm. that it 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 helps from a storytelling standpoint that the characters have a direction to go and a goal to accomplish, um, and a reward for accomplishing it. But also they understand the hows and whys of the world building underneath it, and that's what makes the complete experience behind it. Yeah. Now, now you're not just in a novella running around. Yeah. You know, following Harry Potter as he goes through his adventure. You're crafting your own story within it. And the next time they come across alien ruins, they're like, oh, hey, guys, we could go in there yeah. and, oh. f- and expect to find these things. You right. Know? Just as if you were in The Witcher and you see something new on your map and you're like, hey, I don't know what that place is, but I'm going to go explore it. Mm-hmm. So I hope that answers the question. Um, 
And uh, we appreciate questions every week. We hope that you can come and join us on our Discord and continue with that. Yeah. Uh, Because we do really love these questions. Uh, My next week's topic, actually, that I picked uh, is uh, Palladium. I'm going to do a show spotlight on Robotech. Um, So that should be a lot of fun. You can find us on Twitter at SD underscore Conclave, on Instagram at SD underscore Conclave, on MixLR, like some of you are listening right now, at MixLR.com slash Storyteller dash Conclave, uh, every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern. Um, you can find our Discord link. Uh, we posted it with our Twitter. Uh, also, you can just come to our website at HTTPS uh, StorytellerConclave.com. We want to give a big shout out to all of our Patreon members, especially Knox in the Box, Sam, Arcane Asylum, Sparkle Motion, and Veteran. Thank you so much for supporting the show uh, month after month. If you're uh, listening live or live, our pre-show music was by Arcane Anthems. You can find that at Arcane Anthem, or sorry, Patreon.com slash Arcane Anthems. Our intro music is Beyond the Warriors by Geefrog. You can find that at geefrogmusic.weebly.com. And our outro music, which you're hearing now, is Only Our Footprints in the Sand by Midair Machine. You can find that at soundcloud.com slash midairmachine slash tracks. We'd like to thank our families, Vicky and Sean, who support us every time we do this show. All of our friends who played games with us and have supported us and, and definitely... Uh, give us something to talk about and you our listeners we love you we love you good night good night